Yes, thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the day. We're grateful for our families. We'd ask that you would bless all of it. The joy we have in our kids, our grandkids, our parents, we'd ask that you would build your people out of the families here. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, you've probably recognized the passage. It's Gospel of John, chapter 3. That's my grandchild. Actually, no, that's Frank's grandchild. My grandchildren's grandfather is here. Well, John 3, you, you, you know, it's the Nicodemus thing, famous verse, God so loved the world, see it in billboards. You know it as a Christian, even if you didn't ever memorize the verse, you could probably remember the verse. And we were talking last night on the porch, the passions were over, and, and we, right at the end, uh, Daniel shared, he's been reading Richmond Lattimore's translation of the New Testament, and he had a verse at the end of Matthew 5 that he wanted to read because he wants it on a needlepoint or something like that. And I was trying to hard I was trying hard to make that the sermon, make that somehow. Last thing I remember going to bed, this verse out of Matthew 5. I, I get up this morning, Matthew 5, last verse. Look it up. I preached on it four weeks ago. <laughs> so I'm slipping and I don't uh, know what I'm about. But, but the mindset was, it was a be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is the, um, is the injunction in Matthew 5. And so my mind was, was about the, um, you might say, the, those sorts of directives that we're, we're talking uh, always about, uh, in Christian evangelical circles, that we're saved by grace through faith. Um, it's not works. Um, but we also know that our lives are supposed to reflect. We get a little lazy about how much our lives reflect what the Lord wants of us. And so as I was reading through John 3, and I'm not sure why I was, it might have been a passage in John, 1 John 3, which I'll get to later, that ponytail over into... Uh, um, the Gospel of John. But it's the story. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A, oh yeah, I know what it was. Um, at the end of John, um, it was, I was thinking of the passage, these things were written Jesus did a whole bunch of things more than what was written. But these were written down so that you would believe that Jesus was the Christ. I'd come across that verse, and so I was look, starting at the beginning of John, I was looking at the miracles, and I found myself reading John 3, which isn't a miracle. That's what got me going on this. A man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That sort of tells the story of what John relates at the end of the book 
when he says these things were written that you win now, and here at the beginning of the book, even though it's not a miracle account, Nicodemus is saying, we know, we see these things. We know what you're about. You have to be from God. Now Nicodemus, uh, at the end of Christ's life, uh, after his death, with Joseph of Arimathea, who also believed in Jesus but couldn't admit it out of fear of the Jews. You get, you don't want to, famous guys, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of them identified, the only thing you have about them is how they couldn't admit it. Nicodemus came by night, and when it introduces him taking the body of Jesus after his death, it identifies him by that. He who came to Jesus by night earlier. And Joseph of Arimathea, afraid of the Jews. Now, whatever the fear, whatever the attitude, whatever the belief or disbelief, there was something about Christ that was clearly from God. Right? A teacher come from God. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the famous born again passage. Neither one is correct, born anew, born again. It means the, the word is born from above. Okay? Search well, okay, alright. Now, Nicodemus reacts to it in terms of a secondary birth. The againness of it is playing in Nicodemus's mind. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Because Jesus is telling him, as an adult male, that you have to be born from above to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus is applying that to his own circumstance, that I would have to be born again. So the again thing is not a problem, but the word means, the words mean born from above, each time they're used. Jesus answered. So whatever this is, this born from above, now it's probably anchored, it's probably anchored on his comment about you are a teacher come from God, and he says, unless you come from God too, you won't enter this kingdom. I mean, this is, this is, where are you coming from the same place I'm coming from? Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now people say, whoa, 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 what's the, what's the water there? Is that baptism, water baptism and the Spirit? It seems like it's no. It seems like when Christ repeats the idea, basically, he says, that which, um, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So that sounds like water baptism has to do with, I mean, water birth has to do with your physical birth, whether it's because of the, uh, the nature of the womb or, or, or whatever. Uh, born with water and then born with the Spirit. It's important, like it is to Nicodemus, that we as Christians 
look at, you might say, the centerpiece of evangelistic literature where Jesus Christ himself describes what he's about, what you should be about, and what you will get, and actually have that be our life, rather than that's what our kids memorize at Awana, or that's what our kids do in Sunday school, or that's what we do because it's America and we're Protestants and this is what we're, this is what we're about. Jesus Christ is saying some obscure things. And we need to unpack them because Nicodemus is having a hard time unpacking it and he is a Jew that believes in kind of what Christ is up to and believes he's from God. And Jesus is making it that much harder. You can't enter the kingdom, you cannot see, and that probably means, I, not that I can't visually have the acuity to pick it up, but see being uh, uh, synonymous with uh, entering. Uh, you get there, basically. You shall not, you'll, you'll never see Dodge City. Not because it's important to see Dodge City, it means you'll never get there. Now, what he tells you that this born from above is born of the Spirit. He encourages him in verse 7 to do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. That's what it actually says. You must be born anew. You must be born from above. The wind blows where it will. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the problem here is we've got the convenience of the translators into English decided to translate some of the word for wind into wind and some of the words for wind into spirit. Thought they were going to be helping us out there. But it really reads, the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the wind. Now that's what I want you to be thinking in terms of. I don't know if you ever read Lucretius on the nature of things. I think it was in the, on the nature of things. Lucretius was a ancient Roman philosopher who wrote uh, on the nature of things and supposedly in antiquity theorized atomic, the, the atomic nature of the universe in the ancient realm because of the wind blowing against trees and you could see the effect of the wind blowing on the tree but you couldn't see anything so he theorized it must be really small things in the wind pushing on the more obvious things on the tree developed atomism so similar to this we can see the effect of the wind. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. And somehow that describes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You will hear the sound of it, 
it will testify to its unseen presence. We sometimes like to uh, have a piece of paper that tells you you're a member of a church, good standing. You'd like to have a doctor of divinity degree or a degree from a seminary. We like proofs like that because we're not really comfortable with the doctrine of being born from above that is a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth of the spirit has the same qualities that all wind has. It has an effect, but it's unseen. The idea of the idea of a uh, um, this this wind. Uh, in other circumstances, when somebody says, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't think Christians should have to," and they have some sort of belief in their um, that they have a right to redesign Christianity as they see fit. Well, you know, you believe what you want to believe, but don't tell me that St. Paul agreed with you in some way. You disagree with Paul, you know that. So all you're saying is the spirit in you, the wind in you, is different than the wind in Paul, the spirit that moved Paul. And I am claiming to have the spirit as a Christian, as the same one as moved Paul, or moved to Christ. All you're proving to me when you write a different narrative, they still want to claim that the wind that is Christianity is theirs to decide whether it goes and whether it can. But it's up to the wind. A lot of people don't just want to have um, control over where that wind is. They're satisfied with the wind that blows through them that isn't It isn't actually a wind blowing through. Because when I say, I don't think wind is a metaphor, you know, I, I think this is the way the world is. The reason the Spirit is called the Spirit, it is the breath of God. It is the wind of God. The Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters in the creation, and I believe the Spirit, the wind of God, moved on the face of the waters. There is no other word for Spirit in Old or New Testaments. It's Ruash and, and Numa. We get pneumatic from it. Those are the two words, one in Hebrew, one in English. I mean, uh, Greek. That's the only way we can envision it. But the thing that, so consequently, whatever we're doing, whatever our real, you might say, what gas are we uh, operating on? I, I heard a story this week. A guy from, I think, WSU maybe U of I, I'm not sure which, engineering department, just got a defense contract, you know, designing a drone that would operate on hydrogen. And for range, use, pollution, you know, water is the only thing it produced. And so he's designing this drone to operate on a different gas. We were always talking about that, right? You like diesel or gasoline, you like cooking oil for some trucks where they take real restaurant cooking oil and 
but your, your day smells like french fries, but you know, it's, I guess, cheap. Only different fuels. You've got to, if, I mean, if you're a complete loss to humanity, you have a Prius. Complete loss. I don't care. I don't care who I offend. There's a special ring in Hades where all the Priuses are parked. We're looking at different kinds of fuel. We're, we know the difference between, uh, you might say, the combustion that goes on with different types of fuel. And that's what we're talking about with the wind. What wind has blown through you? Is this the wind from above? Is this the wind of God? Is this the wind of heaven? Is this God's holy wind in you? Because, he says, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak, this is important, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. So in some sort of way, we, when we hear the sound of this wind, whatever this wind is supposed to do, whatever the wind of God is about, you just have to say, what, what is the wind of God? Your life, the sound of the wind of God in your life will be known and seen. You're getting some, some, something to grip. It's not just my own you know, feeling about ephemeral things. I really believe and I just, uh, everything is kind of spiritual. You talk to people who claim to be spiritual, not even a clue. But I've talked to Christians who claim their Christianity, but also not even a clue. They haven't known and they haven't seen. There is no evidence that the wind of God blew through their life. You know the difference between someone, I was talking to Jacob about the motorcycle, and I've known guys who have ridden their motorcycle helmetless, and I plan to do that. And if you have long enough hair, you get off the bike, you know, things are sticking up. It's not really attractive. But then there, at some point, some hair designer comes up with a cut called the motorcycle cut. I'm just assuming they will. Guys that always got, went to the uh, hair salon to get a bed head put into their hair. I do that with my pillow. That's what I do with my pillow is do a bed head. I say, but no, 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 no. We, we have to get it just right. We have to design this thing. Either the wind blows through your hair and makes your, you know, you know how women do it. They always... They always want to look wind-tossed, you know. But when wind really tosses them, they're, they're like... <laughs> it's not that, you know, auburn hair bouncing in the breeze. It's, it's, uh, it's unpleasant. But you want to know this is not just a faked, wind-blown look. We're not here to fake the Spirit of God moving on the earth. Everyone who is born of the Spirit has made the sound of the Spirit in their life. Everyone born of the Spirit has seen the kingdom of God. Everyone born of the Spirit knows something and has seen things. 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I want you to check in your own life what kind of wind blew through you that you claim is your Christianity. Did you feel just kind of real guilty and walk the aisle? Did your parents just bring you to church the whole time and you kind of believe it because you don't believe anything else? Because everything rests on this description of a strange phenomenon that has an effect that sits you up higher than the earth. Not earthly things, heavenly things. Things known, things seen, things testified to. Because you're born of the Spirit, and you're born of the Spirit, it seems, by that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Back in the days when Jimmy Carter was running for president, no, I didn't vote for him. There was all this news stories about being born again, because he had mentioned being born again. He was a Baptist out of Georgia. And uh, I think Jimmy was a, a fine man, perhaps dropped on his head when young, but he was a fine guy. I would, wouldn't mind having grilled cheese sandwiches with him sometime. But all the newscasters were confused about this born-again thing. They had never heard of such a thing. It, it may surprise you in evangelical circles, there is a whole world that doesn't know what you're talking about. Okay? I remember a Lutheran church here locally wanting to get rid of the pastor because he was talking about being born again, and Martin Luther never talked about that in their mind. But people were asking all over the landscape, what was born again? And they'd have pastors come on and they'd interview them and what is he talking about, this presidential candidate being born again? All the Christians were kind of secretly thrilled because they get to vote for a Christian. I remember hearing his testimony, how his sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, led him to Christ, his born-again experience. Then I got a little unnerved when she described being born again as finding your greatest potential. That's what she considered being born again. And she's the one that led Jimmy Carter to being born again. She may have put some other things in there. Maybe he really did get saved. Seems like a nice enough guy. But it matters, doesn't it? The phrase being born again, we cash that in because the phrasing, instead of the seeing, the phrasing, instead of the knowing, the experience of the church, you know, we've got... We got a center aisle here. We could sing, we sang just as I am at the baptism. And I remember growing up with that. You know, Billy Graham would have that sung all the time. And we could have a nice rail here, like a repentance rail, maybe a little pad, little cushions. And I could, you know, stem wind it up and get people all emotional. And then we'd, Leslie would come up and play just as I am. And you'd all cry and you'd come forward. 
Is that what being born from above is like? Because, you know, it's kind of, kind of a crisis, kind of a crucial. What, and there's nothing wrong with one culture. I mean, I grew up with a, altar calls every service, every service. And uh, I would still have no problem with an altar call, none whatsoever. I think the Lord can use those things. But the thing can't replace the movement of the Spirit in you. It is not a substitute. Parents catechizing you, you having an emotional experience on the aisle, it really has to be whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And he starts to hint at the rather dark and gothic moment. He's, he's, he's talking to this leader of the Jews in the night, and you can imagine this Jesus guy is probably pretty penetrating to talk with late at night. And then he says, you know, they're going to kill me. And if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. They're going to kill you, and if I believe in you, you're going to have eternal life? Now, most of your Bibles, mine included, in the quotation mark there at the end of verse 15, there is no reason textually that the quote doesn't go through verse 21. Because he continues the thought without any saying, and when Jesus had done saying this, he doesn't say that till after verse 21. He says then, verse 16, the famous verse you have memorized, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. Look how he's elaborating on that phrase in verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is just him explicating that. He who believes in him is not condemned. You're condemned if you do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Now, he's tying all this in from being born again. Your access to seeing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is yours only if you're born from above. That is your natural place, your natural destination. What does it look like? Initially, it looks like you accounting for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your mind, and believing the offer he makes of eternal life. Believing the offer he makes of forgiveness of sins. Now, this is... The reason I'm, I'm, I'm leaning on this <coughs> I gave you the passage out of John 1 on the side, left-hand side, <coughs> where it ties you being born from above to your belief. The reason, I'm not just saying because it's in the same passage, and he talks about being born from above earlier, and then he talks about believing in his name later, that they are synonymous. John 1, two chapters earlier, the true that in life that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, 
He gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he's there, he ties in, your belief in Jesus Christ is the source of you being the child of God. Child of God is not just, oh, that's nice, you're like a child of God. No, you are born from above. You are made a different being. You are now adopted into the family of God. And metaphysics have gone on. Now, the crucial thing here for sermon time is this next verse, verse 19. And this is the judgment. It's not talking about the last judgment. This is the judgment. What does he mean? That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And then he describes the judgment. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. He's telling you how you tell the difference between what wind blew through someone's life. It's amazing how people who want to turn the scriptures into saying something else are really just trying to make room for their sins. I happen to be homosexual, so I, I guess I need to have Paul not be saying those things. Or question Paul. I want to be this, I want to be that. When he says this is the judgment, this is the judgment of your discernment about the wind. What is clearly seen? Just like I, I, I have an ability to declare what I know and what I've seen as the person who has had a certain wind blow through my life. People should be able to hear the sound of it in my life. What I'm telling you now, or what Christ is telling you now, that this is the basic distinction. The judgment you make, the reason people are the way they are, is their evil or their good. It's a real, it's an on-off switch, folks. Um, everyone who does evil hates the light. He who does what is true comes to the light. Got that? What do you pursue? What is your life about? Are you trying to make room for certain sins that you just, just never really address the issue? Are you after the things of God, because this is the judgment of how you know. This is a discernment judgment. Now, I have put, I have put in First uh, John three. It was convenient that it was the Gospel of John three and First John three um, to continue the thought with a difficult, somewhat difficult passage. It's important to us because we have, I have that little comment from Casablanca where the police gendarme tells uh, Humphrey Bogart, shocked, I tell you, there's gambling, shocked. He knows perfectly well. We see the church, we know that life 
just being led with the illusion or the, you might say, the fake hairdo of windswept by the Holy Spirit. It looks like it's windswept. I look like I'm having an adventurous life in Christ, but no, no, I'm just memorizing scripture, walking aisles, doing whatever I have to do to get the Christian claim in. People are denying the faith left and right. We have the opportunity to live out what we know and what we have seen. Everyone who is born of the Spirit of God has been invested with a pursuit of holiness. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Okay, that's, you're on the same topic as being born from heaven. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the nature of those born from above. We're looking forward to that moment when we don't know what we're going to be, but we're going to see him as he is. We've been pursuing him for our lives. Everything we can see of Christ, we adapt ourselves to, because we know that someday we will see him as he is, and we shall be made like him. So we purify ourselves because we hope thus in him. That's where we're going. We know that the place of God is not just a place without sin. It's a place of holiness. It is a place of righteousness. You do or you don't. And that's sort of the judgment at the end of John 3. Are you someone who pursues the righteousness of God? Do you purify yourself as he is pure? Everyone, this is a hard passage for a lot of people because they're not reading it in the context of what's going on in John's mind. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous, as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God commits sin. You say, uh-oh. No one born of God commits sin. No one, verse 6, no one abides in him who abides in him sin. Huh? It's what people struggle with this passage. I don't think they ought to. I don't think it's a struggly passage. Because if you come at this saying, the whole point of 1 John is how do you know who are the believers? And John sits back and goes, you know, it's pretty obvious that those who the Holy Spirit has blown through are good, and those who he hasn't are not. Because that's what he says. 
in the verse 10 at the bottom in red. By this it may be seen who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not do right is not of God and he who does not love his brother. Simple. On off switch. You're a bad person. You're not a Christian. I'm sorry. I know you walked the aisle. You may have walked the aisle three times. I know you really mean to do better, but you're not righteous. It's not saying righteousness, absolute moral purity is the only sign of being in the kingdom. He's saying purity, righteousness, is natural to the people of God. It is natural to the point where you can tell the difference between those who are in the kingdom and those who are not by their righteousness. He, and it's righteousness not of imputation, not whether somebody walked the aisle and confessed their sins, because the only way you know that faith brought about you know, forgiveness is if, like James says, their lives are changed into righteousness. Because he who does right is righteous. That is what defines righteousness. Doing good. When you, what does it say? He who loves his brother at the end, he, he is not of God, he who does not do right is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. Goodness is the way you know. We don't know from forgiveness. God forgives the sinner, but we don't know from forgiveness because there's nothing to see here. I see. Well, I was a hell's angel, heroin addict, killed five people, Lord wonderfully saved me. Okay, all I can see is heroin, motorcycles, and dead bodies. Let's chat a little later. <laughs> Very wonderfully saved. You can look forward to seeing it. Your kids become Christians and you look forward to seeing it the goodness that their lives are going to display because you know that being born from God with the Holy Spirit blows through your portion of the town you are made into a child of God and child of, children of God are defined by those that believe in the Christ and those whose lives are changed to the good it is always true when it says you can see who is the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This is not merely, oh, I want to know who are real Christians. I think they're really a Christian. They seem so nice and so good and so helpful. Okay, you might be right. But we also see who are the children of the devil. And we don't owe the children of the devil any special privileges in the church just because they went to seminary. Just because they decide that they've got a you know, a PhD or a THD in divinity. Those sorts of people, the book of Revelation warns us about that people who bring up immoralities of the church, cause immoralities. The things that are listed, do right, love your brother. In that passage that, that, uh, Daniel was sharing with me. 
talks about anyone who does not love his brother doesn't do right. The, the perfectness in that Matthew passage, you've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember, you're supposed to be born from above. You're supposed to look like your dad. Supposed to. And if you still look like the other dad, I no reason why I should, I should believe that you're an actual child of God. Unless you do right. Love your neighbor. Love your brother. You have all sorts of opportunities. Those of us who are married have the wonderful opportunity of loving our spouse. Those of us who are children have the wonderful opportunity of loving our parents. Because sometimes, you know, the enemies are in your house. Whatever the case, we're this kind of person. Be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because he's our heavenly Father. The wind of God has blown through you. This is what we're looking for. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your spirit in us. We are grateful for all the chances we have to love, especially our enemies, those who may even seek to hurt us. We'd ask you to continue to bless our ministry to each other and our ministry to others as we try to love those around us in town. Thank you for your Son and His grace. In His name we pray. Amen.